Well, our heritage, you know, this is a, a series we've done for the last couple of weeks. And really, I hope it does something. I hope it inspires in you the truth of where you come from if you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. The great cloud of witnesses, as it says in Hebrews, that has gone before you. The ones whose lives reveal the power and the reality of our faith. And the torch has been handed to us. You know, for those of you here who don't know Jesus, I want to encourage you tonight to listen in to an opportunity, an invitation for you to join and be a part of this family. Family tree that doesn't look at your biology, your makeup, even your past, but right there in your choice, your soul and your heart, when you say yes to Jesus, you're a part of a family that has an amazing heritage. The church has done so many things to change the world for the good. Beautiful things. And like I say every week, it's not just this institution. The church is us, people. I've been across the world, many different nations. And I've gone to places where we were outside. There was nothing there but just little pieces of wood and a little branch pulpit. And that was church. And those people from those villages, they came out. And we talked about Jesus and who he was. And you just saw the life of Christ in them. It wasn't about this building. It wasn't about all this technology and all that. It was about the people whose lives have been changed and transformed by Jesus. It's an amazing thing. Well, you know, I always share a little story, but this is a story I want to share now. Okay, how many of you have been to a wedding before where there's been like a dinner or food? Raise your hand. Great. Great. Good. Um, So if you've gone to one of those and you go to the first table where it has all the table numbers, you know what I'm talking about? So you see your name, you're like, oh, great, 21. You're like looking around like anyone that you know maybe is at that table. And then you go to that table, table 21, and even as you're approaching it, you realize that you are the odd man out. Like everyone at that table knows each other, and the people who invited you to their wedding kind of forgot that you were going to come. And then they're like, oh, shoot, we got to send them an invitation. So they stuck you at this table, and you are there. Everyone else knows each other. Pull out your seat. Hi, hi. And we're like, hi. They don't know who it is. And you're sitting there, and then people are having a conversation over you as you're, like, in a very tight space. Like, can I just get the butter? That whole moment, right? Where you're sitting at a table, you're all equally the guest of that wedding. You know the bride or groom, but yet you don't feel like you belong. You know what I'm saying? You the whole time are like, I feel like I don't belong, and that's why cell phones are great in those moments, because you're like, I'm doing something, I'm doing something, and then you're probably talking about how you're not doing anything at a wedding you're sitting at, but that feeling of not belonging. Well, on a flip side, right, I, the family I come from on both sides, extremely hospitable, the, the Tomei side, which is my mom's side of the family, is just like, they're just a little crazy, but that good crazy, you know what I'm saying? You go there, people are yelling, you don't know if they're happy at you, or they're mad at you. And they're just yelling at you and kissing you, and you have no idea, but you're in that moment, right? So I remember at college, uh, it was summer break, and my roommate and I were like, hey, let's do a trip. And I said, hey, Tyler, why don't you come back? He's from Texas. Uh, I said, why don't you come back to New York with me for a week or two, and we can hang out. So he's like, great. So he gets there. We're driving up to Westchester with my grandparents. It's 4th of July weekend, and I'm like, we're going to spend a couple days here. And I said, Tyler, I just need you to know something. I said, my family is awesome. They are going to just take you in. They're going to love you. But they're a little 
They're a little like good weird, you know. I said my grandfather very likely could wake us up tomorrow morning by kicking open our door with a shotgun saying, get up, eggs are ready. Like literally that's not a joke. And he did. He did do that. It was, (laughs) yeah, Korean war vet. He's like always, I don't know, I think the shot, it wasn't loaded. It wasn't loaded. I think so. I have no idea. You never know what that man. Um, So Tyler got there, and the second he walked in, everyone knew he was coming. I mean, he was just smothered with love. Hugs, kisses, food getting stuffed in his mouth when he came in. He's loving it, this good old Texan boy, right? He's like, great, I love this. All the carbs are amazing here. Uh, Sits down, he's a part of it, and immediately he's like, man, I just felt like I belonged immediately you know that place where you've gone to either your family or a friend's house and all of a sudden you just feel you belong you belong and um on a more serious note that same side of the family this was just a few months uh, at christmas it was at christmas and it was a few months before both my grandparents passed away and so we were sitting around a table together in a dining room table like we always do all of us there's like 30 people and 15 seats but we're bringing seats and there's layers you know layers as we're passing like food back to each other. And so we're sitting there, and my grandfather, the patriarch, you know, the family, uh, he just gives a prayer that we got to record, and it was just so beautiful. And this whole prayer that he prayed was talking about how we would always be a family that loves one another, that welcomes others, a family that people know they belong to. To and in. And you know, many of those parties and family parties, people will be coming and you know, you're calling them like aunt or uncle or so and so, but they're really New York. That's a New York thing. Everyone's an aunt or uncle. You're like, is that really your aunt? It's like, I don't know. I don't even know who she is. <laughs> I just call her aunt. So, but there, there was always that type of place. You were welcomed. You belonged. You had a seat. You had a seat at that table. And even if we had to push things around and do whatever, you were going to feel part of it. And he prayed this beautiful prayer. Um, that we get to listen to many times. And it just kind of sets something inside of us. This is who we'll be. You know, your inheritance, your lineage, the things you're given from those who have gone before you, it affects you. And that can be for good, and that can also be for bad. But there's something even more beautiful, and that's our spiritual heritage, the church. So that's our challenge in this series. I hope it inspires a reality that then makes you take action then makes you take action. You know, we've talked about a lot of things, the sanctity of life and forgiveness and generosity, adventure and exploration. But tonight I want to talk about how the church has stood up against injustice, how the church has been a people, Christians, who have stood up against odds and difficulties. They've fought hard for equality and other social issues. But then also I want to discuss a little bit about who these people were, who these people really were. But first, we're going to hit equality. So, you know, um, sometimes we think that the, the Bible says that all men were created equal, right? So you might even think like, yeah, it says it somewhere in the Bible. There's a lot of those types of statements, but it really never says that in the Bible. It doesn't, it doesn't say all men are created equal, but the message of the value of life and the equal value of life is all throughout the scripture and in the actions. And I want to read kind of something that sets a tone for really what that looks like. Because here's the deal. The word of God is after something much loftier, much more meaningful than simply equality for all. Equality is extremely important. But even when we talk about equality in the modern sense, it's extremely individualistic. Keeps you even alone. 
You can be equal to everyone else. You can be at that table with everyone else, but you know you don't belong. And what Jesus comes and what he institutes is something much deeper and further. Equality on a whole different level of union and of unity coming together. Psalm 139, 13 through 15 says this. For you created my inmost being. This is a psalmist talking to God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. There's a deep value in who you are. God loves you deeply. So the equality that the scripture and Jesus lives out in his action, revealing, and the church continues to carry on as one of oneness, union, looking at value more than just status. Not just looking at your biology, but actually looking at your being, who you are, and that you belong, that you belong. Genesis 1 says this, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, both male and female. He created them. The image of God is in you. When sin entered the world, that's the thing that separates us from God, from choices of Adam and Eve, and things that are just within our own flesh. Listen, I don't have to teach my daughter how to disobey me. I'll give you a great example. The other day, I keep telling her not to pull the plug out of the wall, right? So she's like, not that, that, not that, that, as she's holding the plug. And I'm like, you don't touch that, or we go to the, the chair over there, which is the timeout chair. Take a moment, okay? It's in the corner, high back. It looks like a Swedish chair. It's it's kind of weird, but it's cool. So I'm like, you'll go there. She's like, okay, okay, no. So she doesn't touch. I'm like, good. I thought, I'm going to move out of the room, but I can still see. I'm dad. I'm always looking, right? So I can still see her, but she doesn't know. So I walk out. Guess what? She's like, (laughs) I'm like, Evie, no. She's like, stops. I'm like, I got to do this again. (laughs) I go again. She looks around. She grabs it. I'm like, to the chair right? But, but there is something just innately in her. It's like, uh uh-uh. And when you're not looking, I'm going to do this. But see, we have the image of God in us. And yes, it was fractured. And yes, it was distorted because of sin. But Jesus comes and through his grace and his love to redeem and restore that. Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, Nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. What he's saying is you are all one. You are all unified. You are all of the same worth and value and opportunity to belong. 
See, in Jesus' lived, he spoke these things, but more than speaking them, he lived them. This is the type of thing you have to live out. Anyone can say whatever they want from a pulpit. Anyone can say whatever they want from a podium or behind it, but really you see the fruit of it in their actions, right? And Jesus constantly is saying that to the, to the religious leaders of that day. He's like, you say all these things, you recite them, but your life reveals something else. But we see Jesus, he reveals the truth of what he believed in that. That the image of God was in us, though fractured, and through grace and forgiveness, what we term as salvation, it can be restored. You can belong once again to the great family of God. You can be his son and his daughter. In other words, it's a dinner table with great diversity. You know, when you really think about the church, people of God, and you look throughout history, all the continents, all the individuals, all the nationalities. Think about how beautiful that is, all sitting at this giant, just imagine with me, just a giant table where a feast like Thanksgiving is about to take place, and you just look around and you see the diversity. That's the beauty of the family of God, the image of God that is in us. So, that understanding, that message of what real biblical equality looks like transforms not just the body but the soul as well those were the seeds of christianity dropped into so many individuals that grew into great movements that fought against injustice that fought for women to be treated right women in different countries who in asia when their husband would die they would be forced to die with their husband take their own life Men like William Carey who went there and declared that that was not right and the value of a woman's life. But even before that, I want to talk a little bit because it's kind of a hot topic this day and age, right? Women's rights and all that's going on in that. And sometimes I think Christianity gets the wrong. People just misinterpret because they don't actually do a study. They don't actually read or they misconstrue what's actually being said throughout the scripture. And you know, when you look at Jesus in his life, you will see that he is one of the biggest advocates for women and empowering them. Let's just look even before when God chose to have a woman, Mary, bear the Son of God. I mean, think about that. Yeah, could there have been other ways? Yeah. But he chose for a woman to bear the Son of God, that gift to be able to do that. How much value in that. Then also it's interesting when you look throughout Jesus' life, you know, he's in a society where women were viewed in a very low way, right? They were uh, often viewed as property or even in some cases just a little higher than a slave. That was the culture Jesus lived in. You wouldn't even address women if you were a man. You wouldn't ask them a question that they could actually give you an answer to. Maybe it was just a rhetorical one or an order. So Jesus, as he enters the scene there and begins his ministry, he's actually surrounded by men and women, and he's constantly in conversations with them. Hence, when he meets a woman at the well who's a Samaritan, which is already a situation because the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't get along with each other, but yet he he meets her there, and he speaks to her, and he talks to her, and his disciples are like, I can't believe he's doing that. He's talking to a woman, and some people are like, was he flirting with her? No, 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 that's not the case at all. He was speaking to her, which is against the culture, but he's speaking life to her. He even told her, go and tell others to come. It's amazing how much Jesus empowers them. 
And it's awesome to see how they're surrounded by him. It's interesting. They were the first at the cradle and the last at the cross were women. All the disciples, they left Jesus except for John and the women there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, the other followers, they were there with him to the end. And then think about this. When Jesus rose from the dead, who was the first person he revealed himself to? Mary Magdalene. She was the first witness of the risen Jesus. Do you understand that? In one sense, she was almost like the first missionary because Jesus says, now you go, Mary, and tell them what you've seen. See, in that day and age, women could not be a witness in a judicial sense. They were not able to be witnesses because they weren't viewed at the same level as men in society. So they couldn't be brought in to be a witness. Yet Jesus is changing the culture. And he, to the greatest thing history has ever seen, the resurrection, allows a woman, Mary, to be that witness. It's amazing. And it goes on and on. You see throughout the first, second, third centuries and going on, yes, there was battles for women's rights all throughout that. But the people who really understood the word of God and the truth of how Jesus lived and what he did, you see such an advocate, such an advocate for women to do great things, part of the heritage. You know, also, though, you look and you can't help but see slavery as a big issue. It constantly, our history has fought for equal rights in that way, looking for equality in human rights, but specifically looking at slavery. You know, it's interesting because you'll see that, the, that even though Jesus never says this statement, hey, go and let's start an abolitionist movement here. He drops the seeds of truth that really begin to root themselves into the culture and the society of new ways of understanding and seeing people. And his apostles do the same, which create huge movements that break through. Movements of great people like William Wilberforce there in Britain going against slavery because he saw the Holy Scripture and he saw what was happening in the life of Jesus. And he said, this is not right. Sparked from those things. Martin Luther King Jr., you all know the history, his life and what he stood for. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., convicted by the words of God to stand up for equality and the rights. You know, actually, directly right there in the first century, the Apostle Paul does something that some of us would read by. It's called the book, it's, it's Philemon is the name of the book, and that's a, a man who was a leader in the church, and he also was a slave owner. And so Paul interacts and meets this young man who winds up coming to know Jesus and Paul brings him to the Lord and forgiveness in life and then the young man confessed to me, he says, I was a runaway slave. And actually, Philemon was my owner. And so Paul says, I'm gonna send you back, but he says this. The whole time in the letter he gives to deliver to Philemon, he says, Philemon, I, Paul, who was in jail at that time, he said, I come to you as a slave of Christ. The slave is our brother, that beautiful statement in the great hymn, relating union one. And he says this, that you would treat him as a brother. You would treat him as a brother. Now listen, that's just not saying, hey, give him his freedom. You understand what he's doing? Paul's saying, you are both made in the image of God. 
You are both of the same family. It's an idea, a revolutionary idea that Paul is telling Philemon to do that is destined to break down worldly barriers of division. And so it did. Christianity throughout history, we see that. You know, recently we went last year to Nepal. Those of you who went on the trip, about 20 of us, we worked with Mick and Mary Haglin and their amazing ministry that they have there And you know what? God put it on their heart because when they were there in Nepal, they saw up in the villages that there was um, tons of young women who were being trafficked into sex trafficking, pulled into slavery, family members having to sell these girls, their daughters, because they couldn't afford to take care of their own kids. And believing the lie of what those men said, they would really be going to do. But those young ladies being trafficked, slavery even happening now in those ways, Mary and Mick said no. We can't let this happen. The word of God says they are valuable. Those young girls are valuable. They're made in the image of God. They've been fearfully and wonderfully made. They're not just equipment to be sent away or to make some money on. And so they began the work. And our team got to go to those villages and hear the stories. And they've done it in a creative way. Oh, how God can use your creativity to change cultures, to change societies. It's amazing to see the work they've done. And when you look at even the issue of sex trafficking and slavery, you see that Christians are the ones on the front line who are fighting and standing up for this injustice to reach, to save these young men and young women being pulled into slavery. So many things that we see, people like you and me, that God inspires, that we read the word of truth of who Jesus says people are valuable, our brothers and sisters, we stand in the gap for them. But you know what, this whole series we've been talking about people and stories of great things that individuals have done. And sometimes we disconnect ourselves from them. We say, that's, not, that's just not me, I, I, I can't do that. And we forget that the majority of those in our great heritage were broken people. Messed up people. That Jesus got a hold of them and they surrendered to him and they did great things. They were broken, messed up people. Remember Mary Magdalene? The first witness of the risen Jesus. Do you know she was a woman who was messed up? Jesus found her. as a woman who was possessed by demons and her mind was not sound. The lady that everyone's like, oh man, she's crazy. She was messed up, but Jesus approached her. He gave her freedom, and he spoke life to her, and value to her, and freedom in her life. And she became one of his greatest followers, and his first witness of his resurrection, and a foreshadowing of what our hearts and lives could be resurrected in Christ. What about Paul, the apostle? We just spoke about him. This man was wrapped up in legalism and what he felt was a righteous anger and indignation to attack and persecute and kill Christians. And while he's in the midst of doing that, he's encountered by Jesus on the road and he falls down and he's blinded and Jesus says, why do you persecute me? And then when he gets to the town, Jesus grabs one of the Christians, just a person like you and me, and says, go to this man. He's like, the man who's killing us? And persecuted, go to him, heal him, and tell him who I am. 
And so he goes. And Paul's healed. Paul comes to know Jesus. He was messed up. He had a bad past. He had a lot of things he could have regretted. But the grace of Jesus encountered him. And he embraced it. And he was changed. There's a man by the name of Augustine. So called St. Augustine of Hippo. He's probably one of, if not the most famous church father in our history. He's written great, awesome works. Many times I'll quote him. You'd study him. But you know what? He grew up with a godly mom, but then he said, forget that, I want to do my own thing. And maybe some of your stories can relate to this. So he wanted to go and sow his wild oats. And he was a partier. You're like, they didn't party back then in the third and fourth century? Well, yeah, they did. <laughs> and so he, he went and he was partying. Didn't care about God anymore. Didn't want that part of him. Just didn't care. He even had an illegitimate child. And then he left that girl, that woman he had that child with, because there was a better prospect of another woman who probably had a better dowry. This was his life. Messed up, empty. But his mom kept praying for him, kept telling him the truth, and who Jesus was. And he repented, and he found the grace of God. And he says this, to fall in love with God is the greatest romance. A man who is constantly looking for sexual relationships, and he'll talk about that in his writings. But he says to fall in love with God is the greatest romance, to seek him the greatest adventure, to find him the greatest human achievement because he found grace. He had a messed up past, but he did great things for God. He was a broken people. Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, 15th and 16th century, he was a man who was a, who was a monk dedicated himself to the church, but he had such a warped view. Maybe some of you can relate to this. He was caught in legalism and constantly feeling like he had to do the right things so that God would be happy with him. He became masochistic. He would beat himself, hurt himself, whip himself to try to be right before God, hoping that in giving himself pain, there would be some sort of forgiveness from that. Trying to do all the right things in his own power, in his own strength. And one day when he reads the scripture, he hits a revelation where he realizes it's faith and grace, not by my works that I can be saved, but it's just faith and grace in Jesus Christ. Sola gratia, grace alone. And he embraces that. and begins the beautiful reformation of the church coming back to a place of purity and of it being all about Jesus and grace. Broken people made whole. The lineage of our faith is not one of supernatural people, but a very natural people who had a supernatural encounter with Jesus Christ. And his grace changed them. And when they embraced it, they began a journey of doing amazing things. Individuals with messy lives, they were cleansed by his mercy and his grace. You know, you look at many of us here who are doing certain things and not, the band can start making their way back up here. And you might say, oh, that person, they got it all together, this person, they got You have no idea the messy stories we all have. But Jesus has changed us. We've encountered his grace. He's restored us. He's redeemed us. 
He's called us his sons and his daughters. He's given us a place at his table. You know, the whole vision behind our name, the table, it comes from the story of Mephibosheth. Can you say that name? That's a good one, right? Mephibosheth. Let's hear it. It's all right. It took me like a full year repeating it over and over again. Mephibosheth. Now this story takes place, actually his story is this. Mephibosheth's dad was Jonathan and Jonathan's dad was Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel. And there was King David who was Jonathan's best friend. And Saul hated him and constantly tried to kill David because he knew David was going to be the next anointed king. He was angry by it. And so there's this constant tension, but David always respecting Saul and loving Jonathan as his best friend. When Jonathan and Saul die, David, when he takes over the kingdom, what would happen at that time, whether the king wanted it or not, people would clean house. So all those who were related to the king and part of royalty, they were, they were killed, they were dispersed, they were sent away, whatever had to take place so that there would be no uprising, no coup. And so in the midst of that, Mephibosheth is being carried out as they're running for their life out of the kingdom, out. And when they run down, they drop him. He lands on his legs, and he's a cripple. So for the rest of his life, he's a cripple. So years and years later, David is talking to one of his assistants, and he says, is there anyone still in the house of Saul? My friend Jonathan, that I might stay loyal to the promise I made him that I would protect his family. And they said, yeah, there's one. He's just a lame man in both his legs. His name is Mephibosheth. Now understand, if you were lame, if you were lame at that day and age, you were worthless to society. You were a burden to your family. You were a burden to those around you. You could not bring anything of value you should imagine the low self-esteem and there weren't gear and stuff that was easy for him to get around with. So this was his life. Once a child, a prince, a grandson of a king, and now just a cripple. And David says this, go and get him. And I want you to bring him into my dining hall. And he will sit at my table. And who will be like a son to me. You can just picture this, right? Mephibosheth being carried in by two other people in the midst of all this royalty, back to the palace that he once fled for his life, ashamed of who he was. And yet, David says, Sit at my table like one of my sons. And when Mephibosheth is put in that seat, no one can see his legs anymore. He's now an equal there. He belongs at that table. He's now a son of David. His past is no more. And his generations will be blessed because of that. I bet you there was times Mephibosheth looked and thought, whoa, who am I that I can be here? Who am I? God, you're good. You know, that same statement that comes from 1 Chronicles 17, who am I that thou hast brought me here, was the same statement that a man by the name of John Newton, he was a pastor, 
he said that same statement and he thought about it and then he said, I'm going to preach this to my congregation. And it was out of that sermon and that thought, who am I when he looked at his life that you have brought me here, that one of the most beautiful, famous Christian worship songs ever has traveled across continents, every language was penned. Amazing grace. But see, the story goes further back. The reason he was saying that was because John Newton had a very bad and messy past. He was born in 1725 in London, raised by his godly mother, but at the age seven, she died. And his father, who was a merchant sea captain, at age 11 said, come with me. I'm going to take you on the sea. And so he went six voyages over years and years out there on the sea, forgetting the things he was taught, becoming a man with a messy story, began his profession there as a seaman out there, got involved with some bad stuff. He was on some slave trade ships. Other moments were actually because of his rebellion, because of his attitude. Because of his poor choices, he himself was taken in the shackles and chains. He was just a messed up dude. He was on literal rough waters, but his life was a shipwreck. So he gets out of that spot where he's chained up, weasels his way out of it. He was good, he said, with manipulating people, and he gets on a slave trade ship and he works that for a while he becomes a captain of a slave trade ship you understand what these ships were right ripping people out of their homes there in Africa from their families stripping them of all their clothes throwing them like cargo onto these ships chaining them the turmoil and the evil that took place on these ships and he was a part of it he was there witnessing it there's this one moment on one of his voyages where there's a huge a storm, and so he cries out, God, have mercy. Still in the faithfulness of God, God delivers him from that, and he describes it as the hour he first believed, and you'll hear that sung in the hymn. But it just didn't happen overnight because he slowly kept seeing his life. And he kept seeing what the Word of God said. And what was happening in front of him and suddenly seeing these people who just looked like cargo, now he's saying, they're souls. They're my brothers and my sisters. And so he's just a little frustrated by it. But he gets another job, still working for that slave trade company, but now he's back on land and he's not having to see them anymore in that way. But it's there where men like John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, great men of God, begin to speak and disciple him more and more. See, he was sitting at that table with that feast of God's grace. He knew God was alive, but he wasn't eating of that meal yet. But then under these men, he started eating of that meal, of the goodness of God and the mercy of God, and hearing, how could God forgive me? He gets so ashamed and disgusted of his past, he quits it, he becomes a pastor. But it doesn't stop there. 
See, so often we think that we just experience the grace and the forgiveness of God and it ends there. But see, Christianity is what it is, has grown to how it has grown, has been a movement and the greatest cause humanity has ever seen because people who receive the grace of God then go out and they give it. And so you know what he said? I have to see this change. He teamed up with men like William Wilberforce, who we spoke about. The abolitionist movement to destroy and stop slavery in Britain. It's in the midst of this place that he pens and writes Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What a wretched life he lived and he knew it. But he knew the grace of God. He wrote a book that revealed all the horrible things that took place in those ships. He said it was one of the most embarrassing things he ever put out there, but he knew it would make a change. People would read, they would see. And many say that it's because of that book that created a huge movement that slavery in Britain stopped. Called himself the old blasphemer. He said, I was such a foul man, a wretch. God's grace embraced me. And as he was dying, he was losing his memory and wasn't always coherent. And he said this, although my mind is fading, it's one of the last things really recorded, what he said. Although my mind is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. I am a great sinner, my Jesus is a great Savior. I am a great sinner, but my Jesus is a great Savior. And because of his grace in us, we can see this world change. It's not about being perfect. Can you stand up tonight? It's not about being perfect. It's not about having everything all together. You have a messy past. You have a messed up life. Let me tell you something. Welcome to the story of many of us, those who have gone before us, but they embraced God's grace and they began a path of change and it didn't stop there. It was a life of action. It says in 1 John 3, let us love in action and in truth. Jesus showing us what that was, constantly in his action. There's a young man named Chris Costello. He comes here on Friday nights. He's in the wheelchair. He normally sits right there. He's a quadriplegic. Yesterday, that was six years since his accident. He was in the hospital. He has pneumonia. And I was sitting there, and I was talking with him, and I see him. And let me tell you something about Chris. See, sometimes we think, oh, we... we there's reasons we can't do something. He has every reason in the world to do nothing. And yet Chris has chosen to reveal his past and even his pain from his past to give hope to young people and to others and to give glory to Jesus. He would be blushing right now if he knew I was talking about him. Sometimes I look at him and I cry when I see him worshiping. When he's singing to Jesus. Christianity is one of action. You've experienced God's grace. And it's time to go live it out. Take up the cause. Carry the torch that has been handed to us from great men and women who have gone before us great in the faith. They are now gone and it's you and I. It's up to us. 
How can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in Jesus if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? We are the voice. We are his hands and his feet. We're so desperate for a cause. Young people, we're desperate for a cause. Do you understand? It's staring at us in the face. And the sacrifice in the hands of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. This is the greatest cause humanity has seen. This is one that reaches deeper than just the body and the mind, but into our very soul. One that restores and one that heals. One that mends the brokenhearted. One that brings hope to the hopeless. We are the ones who are supposed to touch the untouchable. We are the ones who run into dark places with the light and the truth of Christ. We are the ones to rescue those that no one wants to even acknowledge exist. This is our heritage. We are the ones who forgive our enemies. Who give generosity when there is nothing that individual can give us back in return. But we are the ones who can do all this only by His grace. And that grace is something every day we need to take hold of. We're going to sing that song now. But I love the description that says we're a city on a hill. It's a lot of people lost in the valley. Despair, distractions, addiction, pain. Many of us have been there. But through the grace of Jesus, we made the hike up to that city. Now we're a city on a hill with a light that shines bright. But you know what? Sometimes we got to leave that city. We got to get down to those who are around us in our world, not just walk past them, but be with people. We got to tell them there is a table where you belong. You can be a son and a daughter of Christ. If you don't know Jesus tonight, I'm telling you, there's a table and a place you belong. That when you sit there and you eat of the meal of his grace, nobody sees your broken legs anymore. You belong. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Save the wretch like me. I once was lost. And now I'm found. It's blind. And now I see.